Community Cats podcast. Ready? Let's go. Welcome to the Community Cats podcast. I am your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we're speaking with Anne Lindsay. Anne has been an advocate for animals for 30 years. She's the founder and president of the Massachusetts Animal Coalition, known as MAC. Founded in 2000, MAC is one of the country's first statewide coalitions for animal welfare professionals and volunteers. Starting in 1988, Anne was director of a canine rescue organization for many years. She also spent 12 years at the Northeast Animal Shelter in Salem, Massachusetts, as director of public relations and special projects. At the same time, she worked with a very dedicated board on developing MAC's structure. As MAC has evolved over the past 18 years, many lessons have presented themselves, and Anne has spoken at national conferences about her experiences. In 2010, she earned her master's degree in counseling psychology from Leslie University and has consulted with states, smaller communities, and individual shelters, helping them to form coalitions and work on board development. She's also focused on helping organizations and individuals to address the very real issue of compassion fatigue. Throughout her career, with her animal welfare experience and counseling skills, her work has focused on the relationships among animal professionals, working on helping them recognize that intelligent, critical thinking and speaking with a strong, clear voice is what will affect change for our animal friends. Anne served as president of the board of the New England Federation of Humane Societies and is a board member of her state animal disaster team. She received the Massachusetts Veterinary Medical Association's 2004 Merit Award and in 2011 received the American Veterinary Medical Association's Humane Award and was named an honorary member of Phi Zeta Alpha Beta Chapter at Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine at Tufts University. In 2017, Anne received the Richard A. Stein Distinguished Service Award from the Animal Control Officers Association of Massachusetts. Anne, with her very patient and tolerant husband, who's a veterinarian named David, live with four dogs and three cats, and her two cochin bantam hens have their own house. Is that correct, Anne? Is that how I pronounce uh, bantam hens? The, the co- cochin? Yes, cochin. Cochin bantam yeah. hens, and so they're little hens. They make little tiny eggs. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah. I never never knew they existed. <laughs> I, have, I don't have a lot of knowledge about hens, so thank you for sharing. And, Anne, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. Happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So we have so much to talk about. I'm so eager to have this conversation. We've known each other for years and years and years, and yep. as I suggested earlier when we were talking before we started recording, we both have the, the gift of gab, so folks will <laughs> have to be patient with us today, but I think it's great. We've been, we've been catching up, and so it's excellent. So I, first off, and how did you get started in animal welfare? Way, I shouldn't say way back when. I apologize for that, but it was about to come it out. It is way now. back. <laughs> I actually had two dogs. I knew nothing about animal welfare, um, and I had an old boyfriend who was trying to get us back together, and he called me one day about a dog, 
a cocker spaniel that was going to be put to sleep because he was biting children in the neighborhood who had been pulling his, inf his infected ears. So I arranged for him to get the dog, and I picked him up, met him on the highway, and said, thanks, and off I went with Bandit, who was aptly named because he stole my heart. And I called someone who did rescue and said, could you find a foster home? And she asked if I would be the foster caregiver for Bandit. And I said yes. And then I got sucked into the vortex of animal welfare work, and I never stopped. And was that here up in Massachusetts or a different part yep. of the country? That was in Massachusetts, and I at the time was living in Charlestown, Mass., which is a neighborhood in the city of Boston. And at that point, I think there might have been a limit of three dogs per condo or per household. And I think at one point I had about five dogs. And I remember having a litter of puppies that needed help. And so they came to my house, and it became a neighborhood endeavor. And everybody rolled up their sleeves and helped. So I got into this in a very strange, circuitous way. I was not a kid who wanted to be a veterinarian. I was not a kid who rescued animals. I just sort of became a dog caretaker and then fell into Bandit and his situation, and here I am all these years later. <laughs> well, I mean, the pathway is kind of similar to what many of us face, which is we help one animal, and that leads us to another one, and that leads us to another <laughs> one, and then it leads us to an organization. Yep. And in your case, it, it led to a coalition. And maybe for our listeners, it would be good to first define specifically what a coalition is and what has it done for us in Massachusetts. A coalition is technically a group of people, uh, an alliance, who have an action that they want to form. They want, they want to accomplish something. And technically, it was for forming a government or a state. But what's happened over the years is coalitions have evolved into being often groups of people who just have a common cause. And in our case, the common cause is animals. And as you know, Stacy, because you have been on the MAC board, there have been lots and lots of discussions over the past 18 years about dogs and cats being our focus. And what about horses? And what about other, you know, pocket pets? And we have steadfastly stayed on the dog and cat path. I have added bunnies simply because one of our programs can help with spaying and neutering bunnies. And so we really have stuck with this because we feel that when we all have this one common cause and we all know what it is and we know that we're going to stick with it, it really helps us to stay clean and focused rather than running off into different directions, which we can all tend to do. How did you get the idea to like put together that first meeting? I was actually at a conference. And there was someone from Maddie's Fund. You remember when Maddie's Fund first came out and announced yeah. themselves? And I thought, oh, my God, we can get money from Maddie's Fund if we form a coalition. So there were a, a number of Massachusetts people at this conference. And I said, you guys, come, come to my room. And so we sat and did a powwow and sort of came up with this idea of forming a coalition. And then the next thing we knew, we had planned this meeting and I remember we had we invited 56 people to our first 
meeting, and it was 56 leaders inside of the Route 128 belt within the Boston area because we just knew that if we invited everybody, it would be very unwieldy. And so we asked these animal welfare leaders to come and talk to us about what they saw as issues. And so we had this first meeting, and it was an all-day meeting with flip charts and markers and the whole, you know, how they all go. And by the end of the day, the question was asked, so what do we think about going after money from Maddie's fund? And to a person, minus actually one person did not agree, but all 55 of the 56 people said, no, we really need to learn how to get along first. And that was beginning. That was the seed that was planted that got Mac moving. And it was a very simple desire and recognition of the fact that we weren't all getting along and communicating very well and that there was a need for that. It was very heartwarming, and to date, we've never asked Maddie's Fund for any money. We're proud to be an affiliate of Space Kitty Express, makers of handmade, refillable catnip alternative cat toys. Think Valerian, Silver Vine, Honeysuckle, etc. for the discerning cat who wants to try something new or doesn't respond to catnip. You can even get 10% off your purchase at Space Kitty Express by using the code COMMUNITYCATS at checkout. Help your kitty blast off today with some new toys from www.spacekittyexpress.com. Did you miss the 2018 online cat conference that we held in January? Or would you like to share some of the conference webinars with friends? You can now purchase the presentations and share them with colleagues and friends. Just visit our recordings page, which is under the resources tab, to access webinars from some of the leading personalities in feline welfare today. They're sure to give you and your cat-loving friends great ideas on ways to help even more cats. Check it out at www.communitycatspodcast.com. With that said, though, I, what I also think about back at that period of time was around the time frame where people were really starting to move dogs around the country, and there was yeah. a lot of stress about that, or did that happen after our meeting started? No, that was going on. Um, not a lot, but right around then, I would say shortly after that first meeting, there was an explosion. The explosion happened in 2005 after the hurricanes in New Orleans and down south. And that's when people really started to be bringing animals in from out of state. But in, in 2000, there was one big animal shelter in Massachusetts that was importing lots of animals. And there were a couple of others that were kind of you know, learning from them and copying the model. And there was a lot of tisk-tisking out there about that practice. And then in 2005, when the hurricanes hit, there was this flood, no pun intended, of people heading down from everywhere to pick up dogs mostly and bring them up to Massachusetts. And then everything really exploded. The one thing that I thought that Mac was extremely helpful for us in the early days was the concept we would have quarterly meetings. There was a lot of networking going on, and it wasn't just organizations, but we also had some animal control officers, some public health officials involved. 
really trying to bring in other organizations, private veterinarians were certainly invited. I know it was a challenge to get them into the room sometimes because oftentimes our meetings were on Saturdays and they were working right. Saturdays and that kind of thing. But it's still an open door policy for folks that were involved with animals and trying to understand the different roles that people played. And I felt in those early days that the, the networking and the relationship building was huge and tremendous. I mean, I certainly probably wouldn't have developed many of the friendships with you and with the other folks um, over the years without those um, meetings to, to facilitate checking in and, and being able to compare notes. And just getting to know each other and realize that we were human beings and that they were that we were nice people, some of us, and that what somebody might have heard about somebody wasn't actually even true. I think that was the part that was most frustrating for me, and one of the reasons that I really wanted to start a coalition was because I would hear things that people would say about other people or other organizations in their practices, and I would think, huh, I know that organization, and that's not what I know. It was unnecessary, and it was very ill-informed. And, you know, I think back, and this was kind of when people weren't using the Internet and email as much. And so we were even more isolated in those days because we had the old-fashioned landline. <laughs> and right. if we did use email, it wasn't the way we do now and we didn't have conference calls and so we really were isolated and we really did benefit and the animals benefited from all of us coming together and having a meeting where we would actually look at each other and in some ways some people kind of had to own their behavior and you know they couldn't trash somebody as easily when somebody was sitting right there in person. So I think there was a, a transparency and maybe a little bit of an outing kind of quality to the meetings, which was helpful. And you were talking about public health, and I'm thinking about how we would have these, um, you remember Day in the Life segments? Yeah, I was going to just mention that, yeah. Yeah, we would, we would have a, a meeting, and, and our meetings were educational meetings where some speaker or group of speakers would come and teach people about what they knew from their corner of their world. But we also added that segment, that day in the life segment, and it was for someone in our realm who might be trashed a bit and misunderstood. And so I remember in the, the old days when exterminating feral cats was a practice. And it was a misinformed practice, but it was a practice. And there was a town in Massachusetts that had made that decision. I'm, I'm not sure I remember all the details, but the Department of Public Health veterinarian okayed that. And everybody was up in arms. And this poor guy is about the nicest guy in the world. And he was just devastated. And he was being vilified. And today it would be like Facebook, and he would really be vilified. But this was this was a little less because it, there wasn't social media going on at the level it is now. So called him and invited him, would you like to do a day in the life? And he said, yeah, I would. So this beautiful, very well-spoken man spoke about what it's like to be an animal welfare person and what it's like to be, and, and to be a veterinarian, but also what it's like to be an advocate. And he happened to be gay. And he talked about his AIDS advocacy and having lost many friends to AIDS. And you could see the forgiveness bubbles over people's heads in the room. It was really, really special. And 
he was very eloquent and gentle and talked about his veterinary work. And by the end, people were crying. And I remember people coming up to me and saying, oh, my God, I love him. And it just turned everybody around because they realized that there was this human being who, yes, he had made a decision they didn't like, but he was tortured by it, and he was a good soul. So I love that. I think that's what a coalition should be about, is about giving people an opportunity to share their side of the story and be understood. I agree, 100%. But... Over the years, as MAC grew, there are several programs that MAC actually got involved with. One was running a spay-neuter clinic, also administering license plate grant funds, an mm-hmm. Animatch program. I don't know if you want to highlight a few of the programs that MAC has done over the years or, um, you know, sure. highlight them or pick your favorites, whichever you'd like to do. And I think to preface that, I will say that we just tweaked the language in our mission statement because it was kind of long and this is what we say. MAC leads efforts in Massachusetts to reduce the number of homeless, neglected, displaced, and abused companion animals by supporting constructive communication and strategic collaboration among members of the animal welfare community. With that said, We have one program, as you mentioned, which is the license plate program. So that actually is a program that MAC inherited from another organization. It's a very long story, but this other organization got approval, and they were essentially no longer functioning, and so they merged into MAC. We created the license plate program, which is where we sell, or we market, I should say, our license plate program, and we market license plates so that people will go to the Registry of Motor Vehicles in Massachusetts, buy a license plate, and then some of the proceeds come to MAC, we have it in a separate fund, and then once a year we have a grant committee who gets together and grants out monies from our 185-ish thousand dollars a year to various organizations that have really good spay-neuter programs. And so we're, we're very proud of how that's done. And you mentioned the clinic. The clinic was something that Tufts students participated in, so it gave them a a window and the experience also into this whole world of high volume spaying and neutering, which um, a lot of students hadn't really had access to. So we took on this this role of running this clinic at Tufts, and it was a little bit too much for us at the time. We were not really equipped to do it, but we did it for, I don't know, was it about three years, Stacey? Yeah, I think that's that's correct, yeah. Yeah, and at the end, I was the one running it, and I am not a clinic runner type, and so I was pretty over my head. But it was quite an education for me, but also for our board, about maybe taking on more than we should have. And it actually worked out beautifully because Tufts ended up taking it over, and it's part of their curriculum now for their students, and their students are graduating with lots of spay-neuter experience. So it was definitely a positive uh, in the end. We have a lot of programs and task forces, but programs are grown-up task forces. So a task force is you try an initiative, and you get approval from the MAC board to do so. And then you as a group accomplish, hopefully, your task force mission and goals, and maybe you grow up into a program, which is a permanent program of MAC. 
So we have a number of sort of moving task forces, and then we have very steady programs that exist. Another of those, besides the license plate, is Animatch program. And Animatch was put together because we were finding that dogs first and then now cats, but those days it was dogs. Many were languishing in shelters because, you know, small shelters, animal control officers, big shelters didn't know what to do with a particular dog, and so the dog would just sit there. And we assumed that there were probably other shelters in other parts of the state that had maybe more resources that could help a particular dog. We thought, why don't we see if we can move these dogs around the state and make appropriate placements with other organizations? So this is an a animal welfare field only conversation behind the scenes so it doesn't that the public doesn't see these dogs and they get put on a database and it's very involved but we ultimately get these dogs moved around where they have a better chance at getting a home and I would say the last time I checked we were at about 2300 dogs who have been moved around within the state to quote better situations and then a couple years ago, we started the CATS part of Animatch, and that's been a little slow going just because it's a little different, a little different model, but we've had a lot of successes with helping CATS out too. So it's been very rewarding. Yeah, Animatch is a very interesting program and one that's quite unique to the area, and it's been around for a while, so it has a pretty long lifespan too, which I'm sure many funders and uh, organizations like to see a program that doesn't start up in year one and then is closed down by year three. So, right. you know, pretty much the systems that you've put in place have probably been tested, you know, in general, what works, what doesn't work. I mean, with every program, things change and evolve over time, but You've tried out a lot of different systems, I would think, and probably oh, yeah. something pretty nice in we, place. Do you have, have a software package that's special? Well, to yes, and actually we have worked and reworked this program to the point where I could scream, but we feel <laughs> way better about it. We, we have a, um, a database, which we actually want to revamp soon. And we are more than willing to share that with groups. We have a whole kind of package so that if someone is interested in the Animatch program, they can make a date to talk with a few of us on the phone. And then we can send them step one, two, three different packets to show them what we have. One of the things we do send is our operational handbook, which was a labor of love and hate because I hate all those details, but we got it put together and it is exportable. So the program is actually exportable if anyone is interested in tapping our brains on that. Then we have a training video, which it's we can explain, but how to do behavior evaluations and how to train animal shelter and rescue and animal control people to do actual behavior evaluations so that the dogs are best represented. And I know that there are some discussion about behavior evaluation maybe not being as predictive of future behavior and so we stress and I'm stressing it now as a disclaimer that it is not the only decision-making tool for deciding the fate of a, of a dog. I think it's important that that be known. Thank you for listening to the Community Cats podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes, leave a review of the show. It will help spread the word to help more community cats. 